Hello, it's Gareth. This is Somewhere on Earth, and it's Tuesday, the 19th of December, 2023. Well, at least uh, it is at the time of recording. Uh, Welcome to our studio in London. With us today is Ghislaine Boddington. Yes, we're going to have some punditry and excellent company from you, Ghislaine. So how's it been going since last time? You've been, I know you've been stupid busy, quite a few Christmas parties. You've just come away yes. from Christmas lunch. But you've been doing a ton of work as well, trying to juggle lots of stuff. Not yes, end of I summed year. it up there. Yes, absolutely. And it's the same, <laughs> isn't it, for everyone? End of year wrap-ups. and But good to see people and hang out a bit at a few like events and things. But you don't get time normally with your colleagues and things. So no. that's good. Oh, yeah. sure. And, and what about the tech angle on all this? I just wondered, do you have any little tips for keeping across things? Like, is it, you know, you're at a nice Christmas lunch with people. Let's just supposing, hypothetically, you've got the Somewhere on Earth recording straight after your Christmas lunch. Are you surreptitiously looking looking at the shared document with the script on during the lunch and stuff? No, or? but I was very good and I didn't drink alcohol. Well, that's one thing. Yes. Good on you. Yeah. yeah. So, right. um, <laughs> and it wasn't that hard, but it, yeah, that was one thing I did. But I didn't do any of this. I'd got all this prep beforehand. Okay. Yeah. But you may or may not have a tipple after this. I think I think we definitely should. I want to have it with you, you (laughs) colleagues here. Yes. All right. Well, uh, to uh, make sure, let's make sure not too much keeps us well between now and uh, when the corks pop or whatever they're going to do. And indeed, the important business of this podcast. Let's jump into it, folks. Here it is. And coming up today. Worried about a ransomware attack? Well, you should be, especially if you're the UK government. Parliamentarians have been told there's an imminent risk to key public services. So is your country any safer if you don't live in the UK? And uh, what can we all do to avoid having to send a whole load of crypto to a criminal gang just to get our data back? And in this episode, it's not just about keeping our data safe. It's also about preserving it. One of our listeners says... He can't even play his old videotapes anymore. So we're discussing how we're meant to archive culture for the next, say, thousand or even ten thousand years. Oh, and there might be, if we have time, some more subscriber numbers if we can get suds together. Okay, in this edition. It's all right here on the Somewhere on Earth podcast. All righty. So lots to get through. And uh, let's say hello to our other guest in the programme, Mr. Bill Thompson, who some regular listeners may know. But let's imagine, Bill, there might be people out there who've never heard of you. What do they need to know about you? I've been hanging around on the internet for far too long than is good for me. Uh, (laughs) I'm a technology critic, reporter, journalist, uh, someone who believes we can make the internet a better place for all of us. That summed it up very nicely. So we're going to hear more from Mr. Thompson as we get into the programme. And uh, also, because you're going to be talking about that whole archiving issue as well, aren't you? Yeah, if I can make sense of my notes. Obviously, they're a bit old now. Sure, they may have degraded with time. (laughs) You mean you wrote them that long ago? (laughs) Minutes ago. Minutes ago. (laughs) Right, we'll find out. Um, But before that, the UK government is just one catastrophic ransomware attack away from the country grinding to a standstill. That's been the cheerful warning in recent days from a parliamentary committee. The caution comes in a report from the Joint Committee on the National Security Strategy, and it says that UK critical national infrastructure is at risk of attack at any moment. Poor planning and insufficient investment have been blamed as well. Now, of course, uh, cyber attacks are a risk, and 
all too often a reality for governments and citizens everywhere. So what can we all do to protect ourselves? Let's ask that question if we have time and plenty more and get into it with you, Galen. So by critical national infrastructure, I guess we're talking about these important assets for the functioning of our society, isn't it? The stuff that literally keeps the lights on, the energy supply, water supply, transportation and all that. And what we're hearing from this report and others is that in the UK, and I'm sure in other countries, that infrastructure is at risk from ransomware attacks. So what is a ransomware attack? Well, that is a a viral, viral infection into your computer, which actually... It can either restrict access to all of your stuff or everything on your computer or it particularly locks particular systems, yeah, and demands that you pay a ransom to be able to access it again. Usually the ransom is in cryptocurrency and it usually comes up as an on-screen alert. And, of course, a lot of this, and there's a lot of information on the web about it, there's multiple reports, lots of different figures, lots of different, you know, linked to different countries, but a lot of it's happening to companies, much more to smaller companies than I'd understood, and also to individuals more and more too. But one of the big points about it is that um, it's so huge, it's growing so much, and 15% every year, they're looking ahead and thinking that this soon is actually going to represent one of the greatest transfers of economic wealth in history. Well, so wealth from people, from companies, companies to, to, bad to the bad, the bad players. Yes. Whoa, so, okay. And and sorry, Glenn. Just when you mention a virus on our computer, so it might be just somebody sends you an email with a dodgy payload. Like, click on this PDF to see what yes, Alan Jones yeah, did next, or something. Different ways, actually. Right. This is how they're clever. It's like you know, could spend a whole program just talking about the different ways that they're doing it. Yes. Mm. So you've really got to be double, double certain of everything, and don't click anything really unless you absolutely know. So that's one of the things. Uh, We've got, you know, seven and a half billion mobile gadgets in use across the world and billions and billions of passwords. But they want to get there. It's mainly financial reasons. Some of it's obviously terrorism and spying and crime, more organised crime. But um, it's really, really been growing massively. And I guess the kind of things they want from a more individual level and from companies is, you know, the healthcare data, the social security stuff, the medical ID, um, sensitive photos and videos and docs. Yes, but they can hold you, you know, go, you, you're, we're not, we're going to hold this and we're going to publish it, basically. What they say is they're going to publish it out on the web unless you pay them the ransom. Um, and uh, those can be huge amounts. In fact, the, the average amount is about 1.5 million now that um, for a, a medium-sized company is having to deal with, yes. So um, the otherwise, on the corporate stuff, of course, they want supply chain information, they want customer data records, financial, intellectual properties, another one that they're stealing. So, um, And uh, unfortunately, it is. It's hitting like 30% of ransomware attacks are on hospitals and the health system around the world. So Which it's really is, serious. Oh, it's so wrong, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, yeah. so, dear health service in name your country, if you want these very important health records back again, um, then you have to pay us a load of cryptocurrency yes. and resources that could have gone into making patients better. Um, you know, PS, have a nice day. Uh, clearly not very nice. And in, of course, no. the, the UK's National Health Service has uh, been hit as well. So I know there was some uh, patient data that ended up in the hands of cyber attackers not so long ago. Um, and also councils, I read here. Yes, uh, councils. Um, to several in Britain and and many companies or councils and health health um, regions they don't have a plan they just don't have a plan in place so everybody's very unprepared 
a human element is the big issue because there's no plan or they don't know what to do. Okay. One person in a company of 3,000 does the click and that's it. Everybody's right. in problems. And generative AI is, of course, making the phishing, the sending of multiple, multiple emails out much worse. It's much quicker what's happening. So, But I guess the main thing for our listeners is, right, what can we personally do about this? How can we actually make sure it doesn't hit us? And um, there's the whole thing about not clicking. Updating passwords, massively important. That's I think that's a New Year's resolution. Right. Update your password. Horrible job to do, but New it's Year's time to... New Year's resolution, right. Don't use the same password two or three times. Immediately file a police report. They're saying this really clearly and freeze your credit, you know, of course. Um, but actually, there's a really good website called No More Ransom. And you can go there. It's nomoransom.org. It's really quite calming because it's, don't worry, we'll help you do it. And then it's got lots and lots of, um, I guess, what would they be called? The names of the different types of viruses, whatever it is. And you can click on the one that you've got coming up on your screen and it will show you how to decrypt what you've got. Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't actually try it because, of course, I haven't had a ransomware attack, but I've had a good look at it. And it was, I felt like really clear and helpful and reassuring. And presumably it does work. It was very recommended to me by a very good cybersecurity expert. Right. So to save people jogging back on their podcatcher, what is that again? Um, It's nomoransom.org. Good thing you asked me because it's nomoransom.org. Nomoransom.org. There you go. You've heard it on somewhere on earth. So put that in your bookmarks and just pray you never need to use it. The big thing is having a backup of everything you do. Yeah. And the second thing is don't pay the ransom. Because all you're doing is perpetuating it and they'll just carry on attacking others and there's no guarantee you're going to get your data back anyway, decrypted. So the backup is number one, I think, because then, okay, change all your passwords, but at least you've got what you... Even if it's last week's backup and it's a bit out of date, it's better than just not having any of of your data. And I mean, Bill, you must have some bits to add in here with your background knowledge of all this back end of computer stuff. I'll be very disappointed if you haven't, Bill. (laughs) I think the, the, the main point is about having a backup and also making sure your backup is actually air-gapped from your system as well because one of these thing, the things these systems will do is they'll um, encrypt what's on your laptop drive and any drives attached to it, including those visible over the network. So if you're the sort of person who quite sensibly has something like a time capsule sitting on your local network, constantly doing incremental backups of your systems, it will have been damaged as well. So what you need is a removable hard drive that you plug in and put somewhere else. You know, if, if your network can see the backup, it's not really a backup, fundamentally. Um, as, as to paying or not paying, and I certainly know someone who did pay and got the, their stuff back, um, but they were desperate and it, was, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't advisable. And I think the problem is, of course, if you're a large organisation and you're going to go out of business unless you pay, the temptation is to do that, which is why the, like the business model of, of the, the ransomware providers is, is effective. Um, and it's, it comes down to good system security, you know, not just having backups, but also protection against phishing attacks. You only have to, as you mentioned, though, you, know, you only have to lose your vigilance once. One person yes. has to click yeah. one link inside your organisation and you can be in big trouble. And one could argue that the manufacturers of operating systems might be doing more to protect us against this sort of thing, but who am I to call yeah. them out? Yeah. <laughs> and the new thing for next year, which we need to watch, is biometric um, data hacks, actually, and, um, and ransomware, because... We know, like fingerprints, etc. So many governments are using this now, you know, and face scanning at airports, all this. This is just becoming a big threat. And, of course, 
the one phrase that really stuck out for me on that was, of course, if it's your fingerprints, once it's gone, it's gone. You can't change your fingerprints. Yeah. And, and sorry, just help me out. Just how, how is that a, a vulnerability in terms of ransomware attacks? Then? You mean, so it, just the database of fingerprints is compromised? Because people it, are using um, two-factor authentication or multi-factor and quite often might be a password and a fingerprint yeah. to get into something. But some recently on dark web forums, they found 100,000 hacked fin- fingerprints, which were being sold. So it's this is just the beginning of biometric issues as well. You. Right. Um, happy to- what about those one-time passwords then? Isn't there some guidance we should delete those too? It did. It said that. And I was wondering about that too. Just, I they found just meant that to in two places. 20 seconds or Isn't something. Isn't the clue in the word one time? Well, that's what I thought. So, but then the whole part of that clue, Bill, is that they only work once, and then you know, if somebody does steal that one-time password, then it won't work again. One would hope so. Again, it it depends how it's been implemented. It's like if it's the criminal issuing the one-time password. Well, more it's just that lots of organisations actually do uh, their own security really badly. Right. Uh, You know, the major problem is is not that your credit card will be stolen from you; it'll be stolen from um, a retailer who you've given it to who doesn't then store it properly themselves. Mm. And that was a big problem, certainly about 15, 20 years ago. All right. OK. So, so zero trust is the phrase right. for 2024. Zero trust. Don't trust anything that's coming to you. Double-check everything and don't click anything unless, you know, you've got someone on the phone saying, yes, this is me and it's Bill I'm, sending me, you can send it. I'm, I'm going to stop trusting both of you now as well. <laughs> don't trust anyone. But no, seriously, you know, we should and just be more careful about Tough this. Tough stuff. And don't be that guy or person in your organisation who clicks the dodgy yeah. link and takes the whole thing out of business. Ouch. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's move on. I think we've got time just for a couple of quick listener comments. Uh, Chris Thompson heard last week's show and says, I was very interested in the small piece about the person who was traced via DNA testing despite not submitting any personal sample. Here in the US, there have been recent cases of crimes being solved by comparing collected DNA to samples in a database and also bringing in some genealogy guesswork. This is starting to raise privacy concerns as well as questions regarding the legality of comparisons done without the consent of intermediary parties. It's starting to look like another instance of technology advancing faster than society can adapt. Um, Interesting point there from Chris, if anyone wants to wade in, but it certainly does seem to me, just from my two penneth, my two crypto coins worth, a little bit dodgy if we're talking about crime agencies saying, hmm, now we, we think we know a little bit about your family, we'll just make a few lazy assumptions that may well be biased in order to kind of lead to somebody else's um, uh, DNA through genealogy, maybe. Might say. Mm-hmm. I was a bit shocked, actually, when I re- I heard that story yeah. on the on the Global Tech podcast last week, because I didn't know that you know somebody could contact you who, when you haven't even put your DNA in a DNA bank, which I haven't, you know. So, um, so it was very surprising indeed. It's because your your DNA is not personal data. Um, it shouldn't be treated as personal data. It's actually right. it implicates yeah. so many other people. Uh, the problem is that personal data law can't deal with data which actually connects different people together. It's, yeah. it's a real issue about how we legislate and how we control and how we manage this. And we have no good. We don't even have a good intellectual framework for considering the problem yet. Stay with us. We'll be right back. AI is changing the game of business. Will you be on the winning team? I'm Jordan Wilson, the host of the Everyday AI podcast and your coach to help you learn the X's and O's of AI. Artificial intelligence isn't just a new player in the game, it's a new sport altogether. 
So if you don't quickly put AI into play, your competitors will run up the score. I've spent my whole life building winning teams, from coaching basketball to working with big players like Nike and Jordan brand. My next move, helping you win with Everyday AI. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or on everydayaipodcast.com. Let's tap into AI together and put points on the board. All right, folks, thanks for your thoughts on that. Um, now, we've also had this one from Anura Samara, and he's a firefighter in Australia. Listen to our recent item on autonomous lifeboats. Oh, that was fascinating, that item. Um, now, one thing that struck me, says Anura, was how the AI would cope with multiple people in the water. Um, emergency services have to triage incidents very quickly. When fires are raging around properties, I have to decide as a firefighter which ones we can defend and which ones to leave to burn. We make similar decisions dealing with car accidents. In a sea rescue, I watched once as the rescue helicopter went right past the first man who, although in the middle of the estuary, was anyway, he was standing safely on a sandbank, and so the helicopter rescued a group further away. So, here come the questiony bits from Anura. Can AI make these decisions? This isn't just a matter of training. It's about the conditions such as terrain, water conditions, condition of the person in distress, condition of the house, and so on. And then, really good point here, I think, from Anura. goes on to say, then there's the question of accountability. Um, what would I tell a coroner? In other words, we need to be able to not only make a decision, but explain how we made that decision and why. Would AI keep a record of its decision-making process, you know, as a, a human emergency responder would do. So I, anyway, I just I wanted to read that message out, partly because that last point I thought was especially interesting. You know, you, how can you ask an AI, hey, what was your decision process there? Um, whereas maybe some of the other issues in Anura's message perhaps can be at least to quite an extent dealt with through good training data and refining the AI model. But on that other one, he really got me. So I think I might... Uh... No, it's a really good point. It'd be interesting to hear back again from the company on that. Although I guess their answer is definitely going to be it's not the AI on its own. We're human and AI as a tool. Mm, Working yeah. this whole system is run sure. by that, yeah. Okay, thanks. Galen. All right. Now, while we're having some listener comments, I also, Mr. Thompson, want to bring you this one. Um, comes from Sam Quinn. It says, I've recently returned from an amazing holiday in Egypt and Jordan, seeing the data uh, that's been left from people living thousands of years ago. I'd love to hear about how data from the current days held on magnetic media will survive well into the future. I can't even play my VHS tapes anymore, um, finishes Sam in his message. And it's just, but I'm, I'm throwing that at you because... Because I'm here. Quite, because you're here, you're quite handy. You may know stuff. Uh, what you don't know, you might be able to look up quickly. I don't know. <laughs> but no, in all seriousness, you know a little bit about archive, don't you? Uh, just a bit. No, I, I worked stuff. for the BBC archive for many years and and the digital preservation coalition which is a fantastic organization uh, in, in the uk so it is it is something reasonably close to my heart Thank so God for that. ask away gareth well that that could be that could have been awkward couldn't it so so <laughs> is the answer to this really that for all our modern day data if we just carved it into stone that would be about the best way of preserving data because nobody's thought of a better way 
they've thought of many better ways. And in fact, stone's not that great because it depends which stone and which environment it's in. If you go to a British graveyard and you'll find all the, the names of the people are uh, sort of weathered away over the years. Oh, there is that. It's just, yeah, if you're in the desert and not having sandblasting all the time, then the stone they use lasts quite a long time. But as with any preservation strategy, it fundamentally depends on, you know, what is this data I want to keep? How long do I want to keep it for? How much effort am I willing to put into refreshing it every now and then? Uh, so I have done some research on this. Yay. And my current favourite long-term preservation strategy is to take a copper disc, cover it in gold, incise it, and then put it on a spacecraft and send it into the galaxy because it should last about five billion years. Uh, at least, like, but that's, that's never happened. That, that, that's, that's according <laughs> to, a, to a graduate student called Nick Oberg who looked at the Voyager 1 and Voyager yes. 2 discs and their likely survival time in interstellar space being buffeted by dust and stuff like that. And he reckons few billion years, they should still be legible. <laughs> so so right. quite an expensive strategy. And, of course, you know, getting it back again is a bit of a problem. We've lost communication with Voyager 1 recently. But, you know, if you're going to go hardcore, that's it. She's slightly less hardcore. Gold is still a good thing. doesn't tend to decay. But nearly every strategy is about putting on a medium and then planning to move it. So, so the single most common storage medium for digital data is LTO, long-term tapes, okay? They work, but there are going to be 12 generations of them. We're currently about nine. And each four or five years, you have to plan to transition onto the new one. And there's a carefully worked out strategy for how, if you're an organisation, let's say... I don't know, CERN, right? You know, capturing all the data from the Atlas experiment, how you move that data. And it's not cheap. It's not cheap. Mm, all right. If you, sorry, one last thing. Yeah, sure. If you just want something for like 100, maybe 1,000 years, there's an optical disc format called M-Disc you can use, made of special materials that won't decay. It's, it's the digital equivalent of acid-free paper. So there are approaches that people can take to this. They have thought about it quite a lot. Which is reassuring. Just going back to the tape media thing, though, given that the whole premise of this little item is Sam saying, well, I can't even play my VHS anymore. You know, so if he can't play his VHS, then why is tape such a good thing? And if he kind of answered it by saying, yes, but you just have a format that you just make sure you, you copy the, the tape onto another tape before the previous tape goes out of date. Is that, have I answered my own question? Or? You have. Though, in fact, in this case, of course, he's probably got those same VHS tapes now on Blu-ray or on a hard drive right. or somewhere like that. The, 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 the point about it is that very little, very, little ma- very little lasts forever. So have a strategy that is about how long do I need to be able to read this for and am I willing to make the investment to keep it readable? And it's that question... Too many organisations act as if they can just make a digital archive, certainly, and just put it in a corner and it will be fine, and it almost certainly won't. Right. You know, when, when you get that ransomware attack and say, oh, no, where's the backup from 10 years ago? It's gone because the, te- the, the tape has decayed. So I think there's, there's a f- basic question is you, you can't have it. There isn't a cheap solution to this. Mm. You either invest at the time in something quite expensive or you plan to migrate. Right. Um, now, the other thing that struck me is also about data format. And I was thinking about this the other day because um, somebody sent me a spreadsheet saying, oh, I can't open this. And the first thing I actually thought was this could be a ransomware attack. It could be right. a dodgy file. Yeah. That's why it's not opening. So I believe mm-hmm. you me, I was good. very, very careful. Very <laughs> good, you know? and yep. it, But this file had the suffix dot one, two, three. And I looked at it and I thought, well, that rings a bell. And it comes from the old um, Lotus, uh, oh, Lotus nostalgic spreadsheet. Now. I, I thought that would get you. Uh, both of you see uh, so and i know nostalgic there we are about lotus notes i'm 
guessing, I'm just throwing it out there, that neither of you are running a, a current um, copy of Lotus Notes, unless you have it still installed on an old machine or something no. like that. But anyway, that it, just that whole point of just seeing if there was a way to convert that old Lotus Notes file, which was probably from some seven or maybe even ten-year-old software, which some people are still running, by the way, um, but trying to convert that into a more contemporary spreadsheet. So what I'm getting around to, Bill and or Guylaine, is that, yes, you can do as much copying and backing up as you want to, but then if you don't also keep across the um, the standards and the data formats, that's also going to be an issue in archiving discuss. Well, I mean, I've got a personal example, which is um, from uh, 1989 to 2005, I was... Um, creative director of a, of a collective called Shinkansen, which was a sound and movement research collective, and we recorded everything. And we got to the end of 2005, and of course we had 875 tapes, but in probably 15 different formats, because across the years we'd been, you know, whether it was VHS or mini-DV and Sony mini-discs, you know, a lot. And um, they are all still in boxes in a storage unit as the originals, yeah, but they also were entirely copied and taken into the British Library and made digital, yeah. However, it is very hard to get to those digital copies, even though they're all there. Why is it hard to get to them? Well, they're in this long, massive, not just hours, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands. It was their early digital, you know, when they started. So they're on a physical digital medium rather than on a server I think so. And I think that it's just a massive long list and it just isn't easy to reach. And I'm still sitting with all these things in storage. It's really interesting because I was involved in a project at the BBC called The Connected Histories of the BBC, which involved digitising about 800 um, videos and, and audio recordings of people who'd worked for the BBC in oral history. History. And that was a sort of multi-million pound project managed by the University of Sussex and the British Library to create an online resource where everything was indexed and tagged, the metadata was all there. And that's been a great success in terms of allowing academic researchers access to this vital resource. But again, it takes time and effort. And again, there's this thing about matching the file formats. I mean, the answer to your fundamental question is documentation. problem with stuff like Lotus 1, 2, 3 is proprietary format they don't share. So you then have to hack it in order to make sense of what's going on inside it. If you've got an open document format file, that's not that they will always be available because the formats themselves are published and public and in the end they're just bits in a particular order. So as long as you know what the format should be and you have the documentation, you can always write software to interpret it. So you need that degree of openness and transparency about the formats rather than trying to protect them. And that has happened on a few early VR projects which were, you know, in the 1990s which actually ultimately suddenly wouldn't work anymore by 2005. I think um, Char Davis, one of the very famous VR pioneers of our time from 95, her work that happened to, and and the headsets weren't available either, but they were able to create um, a new version and create headsets that meant that it could continue to tour. Oh, but that's a whole separate programme about authenticity in digital art. Yes, it is. Right, that's next week sorted. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, thank you, folks. There we are. Um, I think, uh, I hope that answers your question, Sam. It certainly answered many of and, my and questions. And if you're listening to this in 450 years' time, <laughs> yay, well yes. done for preserving both the medium and the file format. Excellent. Yeah. And how is it in space? And I hope you enjoyed the gold disc there. Brilliant. Um, all right. Um, do you know what? Breaking news here on Somewhere on Earth. You wouldn't guess it, but we've just had another voice memo. Here it is. Hooray. 
Hello, Gareth. It's Patricia Reichel. Just wanted to say hello, do a little voice greeting. It's been a little while since I've done this before. And just congratulations on your super duper Somewhere on Earth podcast. Of course, I've subscribed and I will be telling as many people as I can possibly tell without being too annoying about your new podcast. It's fantastic. And I'm really glad that you've assembled all the familiar voices and faces that we're used to from the digital planet. And also rather pleased that you are carrying on with your Gareth and Bill cast, because that's um, really a lovely little treat for me as well when I listen to that. So thank you for all of your efforts. I'm sure it'll all pay off and you will build and build on your listenership and everybody will move over from the digital planet. I'm sure they will. I might be listener number 100, but I have a feeling the numbers are going to go way, way higher than that. So congratulations and we'll be in touch. Bye. Great. Thank you so much, Patricia. And the first thing to say to our dear listeners, if you have only just joined this podcast, you'd never heard of us before, and you keep hearing about Digital Planet, it's the, it was the previous kind of, I suppose, formation that this particular lineup was in, and the previous band, if you like. But that doesn't mean you should feel left out. You're still just as, as welcome. So first thing to say. But obviously, it's lovely when we get Digital Planet listeners who have transferred over from the old program to this one. And... Um, Patricia mentioned listener number 100 there. Now, I've just gone through our um, committee notes and I realise actually that that number hasn't officially been allocated. So I think we need to just, if we can, with Bill and Galen yes, here, yes. just bring together the Suds committee to see if we can wave that through. Patricia says that she wants to be listener number 100. Um, she was originally listener number 50 back in the old days, but is expecting double the fun uh, with soap. That's clever. <laughs> That's good. Well, I agree that, definitely, and especially because um, a very supportive message there, really helpful. Right. So do you take up that subscriber request then, Bill? Yeah, since I'm in the room, of course I, of course oh, I endorse God it. for waving that through folks thanks uh, that's reassuring brian reed by the way so by the way yes patricia you are you are officially uh, subscriber number 100 brian reed says having let the episode on soap suds wash over me i had some thoughts that i must come clean about oh. <laughs> if this whole thing takes off and it isn't just a bit of flannel that the team scrub quickly could the suds team set up their own discussion group maybe it could have a name like forum of associated members or foam to deal oh my goodness, <laughs> oh my goodness. with the ideas bubbling under uh, brian continues i thoroughly support the allocation of number one to gallery but please don't deter gents from applying well, fear not, Brian. I've actually gone through the statistics here and two-thirds of applicants so far have been men. Uh, and so men, women, everybody um, of any gender uh, or anything, you're just... Everyone's welcome. That's all I'm trying to say. So please come along. Can we just do another couple of um, requests, if we might? Um, Floyd Kennedy would like to claim the number 79. It's my current age, says Floyd. And uh, it's been a most interesting, challenging, exciting, devastating, exhilarating, horrifying and stimulating age. And I want to stay in it for as long as I possibly can, one way or another. That's a very heartfelt request from Floyd. Yes. So what are we thinking, committee? Absolutely. Go for it. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I'm yeah. with that. 
thank you, folks, on uh, Floyd's behalf for waving that one through. So there we are, your uh, subscriber number 79. And um, one more, let's say, from Jennifer Ray Crato. Inspired by Floyd Kennedy, I am requesting 67. It's not my current age, but it is my full retirement age. And that's according to US Social Security. Um, and you don't get any reduction for early retirement, or uh, at least Jennifer is not expecting any. So Jennifer is asking for subscriber number 67. I'm in I'm kind of inferring that Jennifer hasn't reached that age, may or may not be looking forward to reaching that age, maybe thinking, oh, 67, I can kick back and just listen to Somewhere on Earth all day without any guilt <laughs> whatsoever. So what do we think then? Uh, can we grant that number to But Jennifer? of course, but of Absolutely. course. Absolutely. Go with that one too. Great. Thank you very much indeed, folks. So, and yes, um, I can hear Brian saying, oh, but those two were women. Well, there are plenty more uh, men requests and we will hear from those. More men just, requests. Men requests. <laughs> People would like to request a man, please. So we will get to, to some of those as well. But um, I put those together because they were related. So you can see what I've done there. It's called production, folks. I think we should call it a day. Producer Anya agrees from Beyond the Glass. So um, thank you very much, Mr. Thompson, for coming in and uh, providing us with your expertise. Lovely to see you all. Yes, it's good to see you. Very really nice. good, yeah. Lovely as ever, Galen. Yes. I'm going to see you soon, aren't I'll I? I'll see you soon. Definitely in the new year. Be back here again. That's yes. going to be grand. Yeah. All right, there you go. So that is all the somewhere on earth uh, for this time other than just the quick updates with our whatsapp number or reminder i should say uh, it's code 44 7486 329 484 leave us a voice memo and you could hear it on an edition quite soon and we'll talk about it and be very pleased about it so that's um, code uh, 44 7486 329 484 and on most other social media i think you'll just find us if you go for soap tech so that's s-o-e-p tech and uh, then the algorithms hopefully will do the rest there you go thank you very much folks we have uh, stevie and john over there doing the sound today production manager is liz and our editor is anya and i'm uh, oh, who cares anyway see you soon folks take care bye